We have uh, come to talk about worship this morning. Um, we've talked a lot in the past weeks about our purposes on earth. And we want to say this morning that our primary, the very most important thing is that we exist to worship, that we exist for a relationship with God that reflects in every way that he is of the greatest worth, more than any other thing, more than any other person. And when we've resolved and established that, everything else unfolds. Every other purpose follows that one. We're here primarily for a loving and intimate friendship with God. And out of that, we can reflect his image. And this morning, we brought Will and Elise and Jason and myself down off the stage because we wanted to illustrate a point to you that worship is not singing songs. And worship is not playing instruments, though that's one of the many ways that we express worship. But we have diluted this word worship to mean this thing we do for 20 or 25 minutes on a Sunday morning once a week. When really worship is a life that's joined to God through Jesus Christ and lived out daily in communion and surrender to him. It's what Acts 17.28 says. I love this verse. In him we live and move and have our being. We are his children. This relationship wasn't our idea. It was his. It's God's initiative. It's actually the longing and intent of his heart. God is looking for you. Did you know that? John 4 records a moving story of an encounter and Jesus' longest sermon that he ever preached on the subject of worship. And he didn't preach it to a crowded synagogue or a hillside with 5,000 people. He preached it to a random, nameless Samaritan woman at Jacob's well outside the village of Sukkar in Samaria. Jesus was weary from travel, and he'd stopped there on his way to Galilee while the disciples pushed on into the town to get some food. Now, we know that whatever Jesus did, he did with purpose, because he says, I only ever do what I see the Father doing. So I believe that Jesus waiting there by the well that day was highly on purpose because he only ever did what he saw the father doing. He wasn't waiting for food because later on when the disciples returned with food, he didn't even want it. He said, I have food to eat that you don't even know anything about. It wasn't about the food. He was waiting for something else. He was waiting for someone else. Someone was on her way to that well. Someone whom the father saw. Someone who the father was seeking. We never learn what her name is, but we do learn that she was from the wrong side of the tracks. She had three strikes against her. Number one, she was a Samaritan. Samaritans were despised people in the eyes of the Jews. They were the remnant people of the northern Jewish kingdom who'd intermarried with foreigners when all the chiefs and the rulers were carried off into exile in 729 BC. They'd even built a separate place of worship from the Jews on Mount Gerizim. So the Jews considered them half-breeds and religious heretics, and they didn't want a thing to do with them. In fact, they cursed them. Public conversation between Jews and Samaritans was prohibited. They shared nothing in common. They had no communion. There was nothing shared, nothing borrowed, and certainly no sharing of cups, a Jewish rabbi would have sooner died of thirst than violate that. But at this well that day, Jesus asked her for a drink from her cup. The second strike against her is that she was a woman. 
Now, I know half of us in this room wonder why that's a problem. But in that day, Jewish men did not speak publicly with women. In the East in those times, the lines and the prejudices were real. Rabbis believed even that Jewish women should not be taught the scriptures. That's how strong the prejudice was. And Jesus here in this passage in John 4 is about to have a lengthy dialogue with this woman about worship of God. Not only does he talk to her, he actually initiated the conversation. This was culturally unthinkable. And even the, the chapter says when his disciples returned, they were shocked that he was talking to a woman, but they didn't have the nerve to ask what that was all about. So Jesus was violating that taboo. Thirdly, she had a past. Not only did she have a past, she had a present. This woman was a sinner, evidenced by two things. Firstly, she had come out alone to a well outside the village, not inside the village where the others went, in the heat of the day. And it seems clear that she was there in avoidance of other people. No one else was there. And number two, in the course of the conversation, Jesus lets her know that he can see right into her heart, right into her past, right into her life. And he lets her know that he knows that she's had five husbands and the man that she's living with right now, she's not even married to. But in spite of that, he engages her in conversation. He says this incredible sentence, give me a drink. She's shocked. And noticing he hasn't got his own cup. And she doesn't even try to hide her sarcasm. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And she's ready for the flare-up of animosity because she's seen that all too often. And he doesn't take the bait. Instead, he just sits there quietly looking at her, studying her face, reading the hardened lines, the tightness of her jaw, the wounded, jaded eyes, and the cynical turn of her lips. Broken humanity. Lost. Separated and soulless. In a way, this woman describes every single one of us. Going about our own business, going our own way, not even really looking for God, just trying to get through life the best way we know how, dragging our buckets with us to the wells of our own choosing and plunging them down, surviving on what little we're able to gather for ourselves. Caught in a cycle of living with the past, coping in the present, and little hope for the future. And when Jesus finally breaks the silence, his face and his words pierce a hole in the armor of her propped up pride. And the great big ache, that longing for something more, something real, opens up just a little crack. She's about to be awakened for the very first time to the most important purpose of her life. And he waits for eye contact. Ladies and gentlemen, when you read your Bible, read it really slowly. <laughs> Jesus is not a wooden character. He looked at her. He looked right into her eyes. And he smiled earnestly and he said, If you only knew the gift that God has for you. And who it is that's speaking to you right now. You would ask me and I would give you living water. Anyone who drinks this water is going to get thirsty again. 
But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will be a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. His answer to her question was an invitation. He has a gift to give her, and that gift is himself. The presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. The water that we draw for ourselves and the things that we give ourselves to, the things that we nurture ourselves with in all of our self-determination will only leave us more thirsty. The water that God gives his very own self is completely and constantly self-renewing. At 16, I used to wonder, what in the world am I here for? So many reasons presented themselves to me, especially in the New Age philosophies, which I was steeped in up to my eyeballs. None of them satisfied. So I got busy establishing my life, drinking from every material, relational, and spiritual well, thinking, oh, here, I found some good water. I wasn't even aware of how desperate I was or how desperately thirsty I was until one day Jesus came to me and he said, He gave me that invitation. And the great big ache, I will never forget that day, August 27th, 1975. I stood there in the first context of a worship singing conference that I'd ever been to in my life. I was completely unchurched, had never darkened a church doorstep before. Something began to open a crack and then wider and wider and wider and wider until I was desperate for this God, for relationship with this God. And he said to me that day what he said to this woman, believe me, dear woman, I don't think that Samaritan woman had ever heard anybody say dear woman to her before, and certainly not in that tone, and certainly not with those pure eyes and compassionate, respectful demeanor. Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming, and it's here now. This was exciting. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and then he looked at her again, and he leaned in closer right into his eyes. She looked, he looked, and he said, for those are the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. It was an invitation. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And His invitation to us isn't an offering just to be a blessing. His invitation is a declaration of his strong desire for us to be with us, to live in us, to have fellowship with us. The Father is seeking you. Put your name there. That word seeking is the Greek word zeteo, which means to seek after in order to find It's intentional seeking. It has the word crave in it. God craves relationship with you. He's seeking worshipers. It's not location. It's not geography. It's not what church you go to or what portion of the church service that makes your worship authentic. It's knowing that he's the Messiah and that he brings us into relationship with our creator. And that is what we're on the earth for. When the disciples came back, the woman ran off leaving her water pot. What symbolism? She didn't need it anymore. She'd found something else. And she was going to tell the village, and they too were going to leave their water pots and find the living well. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we've done 
or where we've come from. We're all from the wrong side of the tracks. But he loves us so much. He's seeking us, and he wants relationship with us every moment of every day. When he says, when we say yes to him, he gives us himself. And we can worship him in an authentic way in every season and every circumstance of life. Because we carry him. And he is all we need. Not 25 minutes on a Sunday once a week. But people who know him and make him known. This relationship and friendship with God is the number one reason. It is a communion, which means it's an exchange, an intimate thoughts and feelings. Can you imagine exchanging thoughts with God? Yes, people, this is possible. Sharing, participating. This is the daily life we're called to. And Jesus put this into his own words when he said this. This is eternal life. That they might know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent.
think of when I say the word worship? What comes to your mind immediately? Often what comes to my mind is a church building, a stage, talented singers, talented musicians, sometimes not so talented maybe. Maybe you think of Lecrae, maybe you think of the color, maybe you think of uh, casting crowns, maybe you think of the voices and sounds of Bethel music. I don't know what you think of when it comes to worship, but surely that can't be it, right? Come on, man. That's so true. Is worship just music on a stage? And Mary just displayed what Jesus was talking about. Totally not. The woman at this well brought up this question. Where does worship happen? Where does it happen? She was, she was wondering, does it happen in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem or in the Samaritan temple on the mountain? And Jesus' answer is fascinating because he says, listen, you need to understand that God's not about a temple here or a mountain there. God is about worshipers. He's about people who worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's why Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, and this is, one of the main um, worship scriptures in my life, and I think in the New Testament, really, and this is what he says. You ready? Okay, good. Just making sure you're awake there, church. Come on, here we go. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Hold on a sec. Did he say, offer your Sunday morning as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God? Did he say, offer your best song as as best and most skilled as you can? This is your... No, 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 no. Offer your bodies. We don't go to a temple to worship. Guess what? You are a temple. The answer to this woman's question, where does worship happen? I'm sorry, guys. It's not this room. It's you. Where does worship happen? It happens in our bodies. It happens in our spirit. And I think that's part of what Jesus said when he said, I'm looking for worshipers, worship in spirit. In your spirit. Not just in this room, but wherever your body takes you, wherever we go, every day, every place, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Work, play, school, restaurants, in the car, on the street, wherever you go, That's where worship happens. What's worship? Everywhere you go. But you know what? I think there's a challenge to this actually. Because wherever you go isn't always good. Right? It's not always easy. Family isn't always easy. Home isn't always easy. The circumstances we face don't always, aren't always easy to worship circumstances. Anyone know what I'm talking about this morning? 
And, and we're no different when we stand on this stage. We're not in, always in easy to worship circumstances. And this is the second thing that I think Jesus is talking about when he says to worship in truth. That worship isn't based on our circumstances or on how we feel. But worship is based on the truth of who God is. We're called to worship in spirit and in truth everywhere we go in every circumstance we face. Let me tell you a quick story. When I was in England, I was studying in Bible college learning how to work in youth ministry and I was away from my family for a week and I was kind of sad that I was away because my brother-in-law now, who's from France, he was dating my sister then, his parents were visiting for France for one week and I got the phone call that you never want to get and it was my mum saying, Will, last night there was a lady driving the wrong way down the highway and there was a head-on collision with Clement." And his father passed away on holiday in England visiting his son. The circumstances we face aren't always easy to worship circumstances. But this is the good news about this well that Mary's just been talking about. The well never runs dry. It's not dependent on the circumstance. And, and church family, I wish I could convey to you today... The amazing way that Clement, my now brother-in-law, worshipped his God in the middle of his not easy to worship circumstance. We're called to worship in spirit and in truth. That means that a man who's struggling with cancer and needing a hip hip replacement continues to declare that God is good in every circumstance. A man who is diagnosed with leukemia and doesn't know what the future holds still maintains that God is good. It means people who find it hard to have kids and maybe not able to have kids, but rejoice with those who can have kids. That's worship in spirit and truth. It's not based on our circumstances or the way that we feel, but on the truth of who God is. And just to be really real, this was probably one of the biggest struggles in my life. Was when I didn't feel like it, choosing to worship Jesus because his worthiness didn't change. I, maybe, you, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but I'm a pretty feelings-driven guy. You can ask my wife. I feel things a lot, and when I feel good, I want to worship Jesus, but often in my life, and young people, you need to listen to this, young people, it's easy when you don't feel like it to worship yourself instead. But that's not worship. God calls us to worship in spirit and truth. Everywhere we go, say everywhere we go. In every circumstance we face. So I want to just sing a song that I was kind of writing that kind of came out of this place of desperation because it's I can't choose to worship God in every circumstance very well. I'm not very good at it. Maybe you're the same. And so this song is kind of a help me to worship Jesus song. And the first verse talks about help me to set my feet on the truth when the waters rise around me. And Jesus, remind me of you when the lies surround my mind. And so, I'm going to jump on the keyboard. Is that okay? Okay. I'm going to swap mics. Ta-da!
Well, you know, it's worshiping in those difficult places um, can seem so impossible at times. But I think the more we practice turning to God in those situations, the easier that turning to Him becomes. And, and that practice happens in the secret place, that place where it's just you. And Jesus, sitting together, every other distraction pushed aside. And you dig this well of worship that his nearness becomes your absolute good. And so I want to talk for just a couple minutes this morning about that secret place that is intimate and the best part of our day. 
And one scripture that has really helped shape my secret place and has really become the anthem for me, an anthem for me, is Psalm 73, verse 28, which says, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good, and I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Now, the context of this psalm is that Asaph, the psalmist, is actually really troubled. He's, he's worked so hard all his life to live a righteous life, to, to live cleansed before God, to follow his, his law, and, and yet he's stricken and seems to have trouble all around him. And, and yet there's people around him that are living wickedly, that are living unrighteously, that seem to be prospering. And he's trying to reconcile this tension between knowing that God is good to the pure in heart, but he also seems to be good to the wicked. How is that fair? Um, what does that mean for us who are living righteously? And I don't like that, he says, basically. And he, he becomes so weary wrestling through this tension um, to the point where it says, my feet almost slipped, he says, until I entered the sanctuary of the Lord. And at that moment in verse 17, everything changes for Asaph. His entire perspective shifts. No longer is he thinking about how the wicked are prospering, but he's thinking eternally about who Jesus is, about what Jesus has said. His focus is completely different, and he's suddenly at rest. He has a complete turnaround, and he has an eternal perspective and sees God's heart. After acknowledging his own embittered attitude and sin against God for not believing his truth, he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on the earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your acts. You see, stepping into the sanctuary like Asaph did is not just a one-time thing. It's not a, well, I did it, great, and I'm, I'm done now. But this is an everyday practice. It's an everyday joy and delight to be able to step into the sanctuary of God. And Jesus made that possible for us. And like Asaph, when I'm outside of that sanctuary, the less time I spend there, the further I feel from him, the more negative I become, the more arrogant. My arrogance starts to seep into places I, it's horrible, it's ugly. And I start striving in everything that I do. And I become unloving. And I think Asaph struggled with that same thing. He thought in judgment of other people rather than in love because his perspective was shifted. But as soon as he stepped in, everything changed. And when I step into the sanctuary of God, into that secret place where it's just me and him, everything changes. I become more in love with him and his presence, and that starts to overflow out of me. I become overwhelmed with thanksgiving for his goodness because my eyes are no longer fixed on me and my little problems and my frustrations and 
how I think things should be done, but focused on him. And he gently, ever so gently, begins to highlight my weaknesses in love where I'm, I have to humble myself before him. I can't stay arrogant in his presence because he's so gentle in his nudging, saying, hey, this is, this is a wrong attitude. This is a wrong perspective. And he fills my heart with gratitude. I fall more in love with him. He guides me in direction. Listening prayer, you guys, has changed my life. Because as soon as I step in and I say, okay, Lord, what do you think of this? He tells me where to go. He sets my feet on the right path. And he'll even change my thinking. He transforms my thinking in the midst of that place. He changes my perspective, shows me his heart, shows me mysteries about himself and his thoughts towards me and towards others. And my eyes become fixed on eternity rather than on the circumstances and the feelings and the, and the experiences around me. He shows me more of who he is, that he's not just a serious God, but he's a fun God. And he delights to be in that sanctuary with us. And so... As I've been stepping in and just experiencing his goodness in his nearness every day, it's all I can seem to write about is his nearness. And so I'm going to sing for you um, a song I feel like God's put on my heart that's just, you're really the first group of people to hear this. This has just been in my own little intimate place with the Lord about how I feel about his nearness and how that changes everything so Smoothing down my edges 
my friends is a 12-year-old boy who had a passion and a love for singing and playing. That boy didn't understand what worship really was at that time. Worship at that time to this young boy was singing songs, but that young 12-year-old boy you just heard sing was me. Grandfather always loved to hear me sing, and I recorded that and gave it to him, and Every time he heard me sing, he would look at me and say, Jason, that's the best time I ever heard that song sung. So, but a lot has changed since that, and thank the Lord for that. I knew the Lord as a child, and I did my best to give of the gifts and talents that he blessed me with to serve him with them. And when it come to living a life of worship, I didn't catch that whole idea, that old concept. Till later in life, I didn't understand it. And I don't remember being taught of that concept and even hearing of it. There came a point, though, in my life when I needed to be pruned and shaped from past hurts and disappointments that caused uh, a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness toward man. And I carried a great amount of unforgiveness in my heart and, and which ate me and tore me from the inside. And if you've ever experienced unforgiveness in your life, if you've ever experienced bitterness, you know what I'm saying about it eating you from the inside out and it, it just tears you apart. 
And the time came when I knew that I had to deal with this, and I didn't really know how to go about that or how to even face it, but I knew it was time. And there were tent meetings happening in our little town in the summer of 2001, and I went and attended the last meeting that was happening that week. And I walked into that meeting as a Christian, but I was very hurt, very disappointed with the world. I was very angry inside, and God knew all of that. There was an altar call given for families to go forward for prayer in that meeting. We just had Josh at the time, and Josh was a very active two-year-old boy. And I took Sylvia by the hand, and I put Joshua in my arms here, and he rested on my shoulder, and we went forward for prayer. And when they laid hands on us and prayed over us, my legs give out. That never happened to me before. And I went down on the floor of that tent, up against the post that held that tent up. And I sat there, and God began to minister into my spirit. And I knew there were things going on around me, and I knew there was other stuff happening, but I was in a different place. And I believe, and I always declare, that God did an open-heart surgery on me spiritually that evening in that tent meeting. Something broke in the spiritual realm, and I knew it. I felt it inside of me. I sensed something changing. And I knew that when I walked out of that meeting that evening that I was a different man than what I was when I went in. Jesus got a hold of my heart. It was then that life for me began to take on a whole new meaning. It was then that worship began to become real to me. It was now... Be beginning to realize, I was now beginning to realize that worship just wasn't singing songs on Sunday morning anymore, but it was to be a lifestyle. I began to learn that to worship God was to give my all to Him. To worship God was to surrender my will to His will. To worship God was to love Him no matter what life threw at me. It didn't matter what those circumstances were, just as Will said, I had to worship God. And to worship God was to commune with Him and listen to that still small voice that He uses to lead me and guide me through life's journey. Worship then became something to me that I never ever thought it was to be. It began a new lifestyle for me. Psalms 95, 1-7 says, O come, let us sing joyfully to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with, with a song of thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with songs. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it by his command, and his hands formed a dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker in reverent praise and prayer. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today I still love to sing those songs. I still love to worship God in song and in praise but I love to worship Him with everything I have. And today I live to worship Him.